0: Turn please to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah 52, reading from verse 13 to the end of Isaiah 53. Let's enjoy the word of, the God, of God together. See, my servant will act wisely. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge I hope your mind was just full of Jesus as we read that together. And you will know that we spent our first two sessions in Isaiah demonstrating that Jesus and Jesus alone is the only contender for the role of Jehovah's servant as presented in this passage. But what we want to do now today is we want to get into the text. But before we do that, just let me mention two things that were still outstanding from our last session. Last session, we were thinking about who is the subject of this passage. What is the theme of this passage? And strangely enough, we could miss this. And miss it because we're just so familiar with it. We instantly see the suffering of Jesus. You know, and we, we zero in on verses like Isaiah 53 verse 6. You know, we all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And of course, we do that. We see the Saviour suffering on our behalf. But notice, please, how this passage is introduced and how it concludes. What is God calling our attention to? Well, Isaiah 52, verse 13. See, My servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. How does the passage end? Isaiah 53 verse 12. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death. God would have us see his servants triumph and exaltation. Oh yes, there is so much that is said about his rejection and his humiliation and his suffering. But that's not where the story stops. And it's not where our focus should ultimately remain. And there is a great lesson in this for us as worshiping Christians and indeed as witnessing Christians. Just as Isaiah will not speak only of Jesus' sufferings, neither should we. When we share with people the truth of Jesus. Let's not leave them with a Jesus who died for their sins, but with a Jesus who died for their sins and who is now exalted on high. We proclaim a risen and glorified And exalted saviour. The gospel message. Is the announcement. Of what God has done. Through Jesus. And it concludes. With an enthroned saviour. And all of the implications of that. For us. And for our world. The third thing I just want to say by way of introduction, we thought about who the subject of this passage is, what the theme of the passage is. Let me just say something about how the passage is structured, how it fits together. This is just something I'm going to ask you to bear in mind as you continue to study this. Most likely, the version that you're using of the Bible will present the text will set it out in five stanzas of broadly equal length. And that is very helpful on the eye. I should point out, of course, that the first stanza of this famous passage is actually in Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15. Sometimes they're not even read as part of this passage, which is, due to the unfortunate chapter division. It's a shame because that's the introduction to it. In those three verses, you have the whole passage in a nutshell. It includes all the major elements that are then unpacked in the following verses in Isaiah 53. We read of the servant's success, his exaltation, his suffering... And his worldwide impact. That's all in the opening stanza. Now some commentators stress. That this entire passage. Is actually a prophetic dialogue. Between Jehovah. And the restored nation of Israel. In a day to come. In it we hear Israel's national confession of its unbelief and its miscalculation concerning their Messiah. And this is the day we're given this prophetic insight into the day when the nation takes ownership of its shocking ill-treatment. Of the one who was Jehovah's servant. I'm not going to go into the detail of it. But as you read through it. You'll have Jehovah speaking. You'll have the restored nation speaking. You'll have Jehovah speaking again. You'll have the nation speaking again. And then Jehovah will speak again at the end. It can be a little bit difficult to identify when the transition comes between Jehovah and the nation But what I would say to you is, as you read this passage, keep asking yourself the question, who is speaking? Is this the Lord God, Jehovah speaking? Or is this the nation speaking? So let's get into the text then. This opening stanza in Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15. Jehovah issues his summons to see or to behold his servant who will act wisely. You maybe see if you're using the NIV footnote, little alternative translation there, not he will act wisely, but he will prosper. Look at my servant. He'll act wisely. He will prosper. And the difference in translation Reflects the fact that both of those ideas are in this, the root Hebrew word that is used. It's the idea of great wisdom and skill on the one hand, and that of success and prosperity on the other hand. We can think of it like this Jehovah is calling attention to the fact that his servant will succeed. In the task that the Lord has given him because of his unrivaled wisdom. And as a result of his wisdom and success, Jehovah's servant will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. That's the Old Testament talking about Jesus. Jesus. And I find it remarkable. But in biblical Hebrew, there are three words that are used to describe this idea of elevation and exaltation. And all three of them are used here by Jehovah in relation to his servant. And I can't help but see such a connection between what Isaiah says here about Jesus... And what Paul writes about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 after describing his condescension, his humiliation, his obedience to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, says Paul, God has highly exalted him. Literally, literally, God has hyper exalted him. There's nowhere higher for him to go. There's no name that can rival the name he has been given. Isaiah and Paul are saying exactly the same thing about Jehovah's servant. But he tells us then in Isaiah 52 verse 14 and 15. He tells us why Jehovah's servant is exalted. And When he is exalted. Note the all important words. At the beginning of verse 14 and 15. Just as. Then he describes his suffering. Verse 15. So. He will. Suffering. And glory. Suffering. Before glory. Here in verse 14, we have Israel's great stumbling block. They had no place whatsoever for a suffering Messiah. And how he suffered. We read that Israel was appalled at him. Someone has said, The question on people's minds as Jesus hung on the cross was not, is he divine? It was, is that human? His visage, his appearance was more marred than any man. But verse 15 continues. Just as there were many who were appalled at his suffering, so he will sprinkle, or alternative translation, or he will startle many nations. This is the servant's exaltation following his suffering. And the idea is either that of bringing cleansing to many, That's the idea of sprinkling, sacrificial language. Or it's that idea of stunning and silencing the rulers of this world. That's the idea of he'll startle many nations. And it's difficult to choose between the two possible translations because both of those things do follow from Christ's exaltation. He is the exalted saviour with the power to cleanse and to save multitudes. But he's also the judge and the king who will come again and who will subdue all in our world who side with evil, peasant or king. It's interesting to note that Paul quotes this verse in Romans 15:21, where he is explaining his mission to the Gentiles of the world. He tells us that through his ministry, of making Christ known to the Gentiles, this is what Paul says, "Those who have not been told about him now see, and those who have not heard Now understand the worldwide conversion of the Gentiles is integral to the servant's exaltation. So get what that means, brothers and sisters, living in Ireland or Seattle or wherever. It means that those of us here today who have come to Jesus for salvation, are integral to his exaltation. We're part of it. Now, with the remainder of our time, let's listen to the restored nation of Israel and to the confession that will be on their lips in a day to come. Now, not for one moment would I want to place any distance between ourselves as Gentile converts and the content of Isaiah 53, 1 to 6? But I ask you this, can you try to imagine what it will mean for Jehovah's servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, when on that day, his own nation, will confess where they got it so wrong concerning him. But how they've now come to understand that his suffering was for them and their salvation. Of course we can see ourselves in there. But as you read these verses, let's give due weight to the primary sense of our We, us, in a very special sense, this is Israel's testimony. So we'll take both stanzas together. Here's what we have in these six verses. Isaiah 53, one to six. We have a two-part question. That's verse one. We have a three-part answer. That's verses two and three. And we have a grand confession. That's verses four to six. The nation asks two questions of itself. That's why you have to see Israel in this in the primary sense. The first question they ask is, who has believed our message? That is the message that was for us. The message given to us. Remember, Jesus said he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 15, verse 24. When Jesus dispatched his disciples, he told them not to go to the Gentiles or to the Samaritans, but only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 10, verse 6. Paul tells us that the gospel had to come to the Jew first. And then to the Gentile, the message of Jehovah's servant came first and in a very special sense to Israel. But Israel then, the nation laments. Who believed it? And then they ask a second question, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who witnessed, who experienced God at work by his mighty arm and salvation? And the answer, of course, is that there were precious few among the nation who did. The Apostle John explained it like this in John 10, verse 37 and 38. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence... They still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And the Apostle Paul made the same point and quoted the same verse in Romans 10, verse 16. You see, Israel as a whole, generally speaking, refused the message and missed the arm of the Lord. But why? Why did Israel get it so wrong concerning their Messiah, Jehovah's servant? Well, the restored nation tells us in verses 2 and 3. And they give three reasons. Each of them introduced by the word he. Number one, he grew up before him, before Jehovah like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Israel could not see past. Israel could not come to terms with his humble origin and earthly life. We're told the servant grew up before Jehovah. Here we have those 30 silent years when the Savior lived in total obscurity, humanly speaking. And when it came the time for Jehovah's servant to be revealed to the nation, its leaders wasted no time in telling him that he lacked all the right connections And was a person of no status or importance whatsoever. He was the carpenter's son. He came from the wrong neighborhood. Galilee. He hadn't been to the right schools. He wasn't trained by the rabbis. Jesus lived a life far removed from polite society and the ruling elite. That was the first reason. Second reason. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. The externals were missing. Israel looked for another Saul, head and shoulders above his peers. But Jesus didn't fit the bill. Jesus was no muscular Messiah. He lacked, listen to the nation. He lacked majesty. How strange that sounds to us. We've just been singing, we're humbled by your majesty. But it's the idea of external trappings, the worldly pomp, the glitter associated with the status of a king. And so the nation confesses that Jehovah's servant failed to impress and had nothing going for him in their eyes. And then thirdly, and most seriously of all, the nation tells us, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The nation confesses that he was repugnant to them in his suffering. Esteemed is an accounting term. The nation put a worthless tag on him. What use is a suffering Messiah? We considered him of no value. At all. Israel confesses its disastrous rejection of Jehovah's Servant on account of his humble origins, his external appearance, and his familiarity with suffering. But what follows? Their confession of how and why they missed their Messiah is their great confession of what they now know to be true. And what marvelous reading it is. Verses four to six. Notice the change. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Do you hear the intensity of this? He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What a magnificent statement of substitutionary atonement through the death of Christ these verses are. And they're in the Old Testament. Reminds us of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The purpose and manner of Christ's death was set out in the Old Testament scriptures. So let's end with this this morning guys. All of his suffering. Every single bit of it. Was for us. And let us Gentile converts. Just squeeze in among our Israelite brothers and sisters on this ground, standing shoulder to shoulder with Israel here, see yourself in verse 6. Here's the two most important alls in all of Scripture. Starts and ends with it. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When you have understood all that men did to Jesus at Calvary, You still have not entered in to the fullness of what was happening. Mm -hmm. Because the Lord himself placed all of our iniquity upon his willing and obedient servant. What a truth to get the hold of. What a truth to get the hold of us. What a message to share with others. All our sin, God took it and placed it on his servant so that we could be forgiven. We are the most privileged people on the face of this earth. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.